This afternoon, brothers and sisters, we may turn in Holy Scripture to two places in the New Testament. We first turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 15, where we begin reading at verse 26, and read to chapter 16, verse 16. And then in the second place, we turn to Galatians chapter 5, where we read the verses 16 through 26. First, we turn to John 15, beginning at verse 26. Where God's word reads as follows. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did, do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. That's our reading from the Gospel account. Let's turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, where we begin reading at verse 16 and read until the end of this chapter. After which we will sing in response Psalm 25, stanzas 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord as we, as church, have summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you find on page 534 of your Book of Praise. In Lord's Day 20, we notice as above the heading, God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And here in this Lord's Day, we echo the truth of our Lord in this way. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, He is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, He is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all His benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. After we've heard the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response hymn 47. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are one who enjoys going for walks in the evening, one of your reasons might be that things look a little different at night, or at least you notice more. If you walk past a house, or a pond, or an office building, or the like, you might slow down and take a closer look, because there's something you've never noticed when you've walked past it in the daylight. And it doesn't take long before you realize why you've only noticed it now. 
there are lights shining on it. These lights are generally called floodlights. And these lights are supposed to maximize the object's beauty and its dignity by putting all of its details into sharp focus. And if flood lighting is done well, you're not going to see where the light is coming from. You'll only see what the floodlights are illuminating. That's the task of flood lighting. Not to attract any attention to itself, but away from itself to the building. Well, it's this image congregation that becomes so helpful when we together consider Scripture's teaching on the Holy Spirit. Today, we hear and read more about the Spirit than in previous times, and that tends to arouse our curiosity about what the Bible actually reveals concerning the Spirit. And yet, while curiosity can grow, so can confusion. You come across people who argue for something called spirit baptism, and you wonder what that is. You hear people say that as Christians, we need to, be, we need to open ourselves up to the Spirit. And you hear reports of people who claim to have received the Spirit, and they can testify to a gloriously joyful and happy feeling. What are we to make of all these things that we hear about the Spirit's activity in the world around us? Well, as I said, confusion can grow over the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can spend all sorts of time looking at the various aspects of God's revelation concerning the Holy Spirit. But this afternoon, I think we'll be further ahead when we think on those floodlights. For they illustrate for us the central task of the Spirit. And therefore they help us to evaluate somewhat the things we hear about Spirit experiences. This afternoon, in a careful and sober manner, God's Word instructs you in the central task of the Spirit. That He works quietly in the background for your salvation. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit quietly causes sinners to see the exalted Christ. We consider three things this afternoon. First, the identity of the Spirit, who He is. The activity of the Spirit, what He does. And then somewhat related to that, then also the fruit of the Spirit, what He accomplishes in our lives. So first, the identity of the Spirit. Indeed, the question often comes up, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Is he a person or a power? And does it really make any difference? The matter really comes down to the question of whether the Holy Spirit is true God or a power from God. Is the Spirit some special force that the Lord God uses, just like He uses other forces in nature, winds, magnetic fields? Or does the Holy Spirit work as a distinct person with a distinct task, 
having a mandate to perform within the Trinity. The term spirit conjures up in our minds things, uh, rather conjures up in our minds a thing, an it. Something that perhaps floats around in the air, like goblins, witches, ghosts, and perhaps you know that the, in the Bible, the words for spirit, wind, and breath, they're all the same word. No one would suggest that wind is a person instead of a thing or power. Also, the Bible does not seem to give to the spirit the same personal form as the other partners in the Trinity. Father, son, these terms suggest personhood. It's not so clear, however, with spirit. Now, there are people such as the Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that the Holy Spirit isn't a person, but simply the power of God. They will say, for example, that it makes no sense for the Bible to speak of the Spirit being poured out on people if the Spirit is a person. And yet the Bible leaves us with no doubt that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person. He is a separate person within the Trinity, just as the Father and the Son are persons. Several times, Scripture mentions all three together and so puts them on the same level. We remember the Lord Jesus just before he ascended. He instructed his disciples to go make disciples of all nations and to baptize them into the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing into the name of the Father and the Son is to include also the Holy Spirit. So whatever you and I can say about the Father and the Son you can really equally say about the Spirit. Each has promises. Each has a name. Also, when Christ referred to the Spirit in the course of his ministry, he never used the neutral pronoun, it. Instead, he uses the masculine pronoun, he. We came across that, for example, a number of times in our reading from John 15 and 16. When the Helper comes, he will bear witness about, about me. 15 verse 26. 16 verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Now, this suggests that the Spirit is not a power, but a person. The scripture has even more indicators that the Spirit is not a force, but a person. The Lord Jesus said that the Spirit would teach and remind the disciples. He also warned us about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Paul instructed the Ephesians not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Powers don't have intelligence, emotions, affections. Yet Scripture presents the Spirit as having both. So we, for our part, do well then to speak of the Holy Spirit with the pronoun he, not with the word it. The Holy Spirit does things. 
Well, to push ourselves a little further this afternoon, the Bible not only presents the Spirit as a person, but specifically as a divine person. This is also then why the church echoes God's word when she confesses in this Lord's Day. We believe concerning the Holy Spirit that first he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Consider a number of proof texts which our Lord's Day mentions. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit was involved in the creation of the universe. Yet, you and I both know from Scripture that only God can create. No creature has such an ability. In other words, the Spirit is true God. He does works that only God can do. Later on, after the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they grumbled against Moses and God while they were on their journey to Canaan. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God displayed great patience with them, and through Moses, he brought water out of a rock for them to drink. Now, the place where that happened was called Massa and Meribah, Hebrew words for testing and quarreling, because... It says in Exodus 17, they tested the Lord there. Now, many years later, one of the psalmists recalls this event in Psalm 106, and he says in verse 33 that they rebelled against the Spirit of God. Lord and the Spirit of God, one and the same. But we also find that in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and following, where it says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? You have not lied to men, but to God. So without any qualifying, Peter calls the Holy Spirit God. Ananias and Sapphira defied the Holy Spirit, and the consequence was the most extreme, severe punishment. Death on the spot. Peter places the Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son. The Spirit, from eternity past, has been one with Father and Son. What does this mean for us? Whatever the Holy Spirit does must be in strict harmony with the goals of the Father and the Son. And their goal is to make certain sinners believe in Christ and receive his blessings. The Holy Spirit, as true God, as divine person, pursues that same goal. They work Together. Yes, as our Lord's Day continues, the Holy Spirit is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits. He's also given to me. That's 
passive. That means that others were involved in giving the Spirit to me, and the Spirit cooperates with that. We read this very thing in John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, as we also confess in the Nicene Creed. He cooperates with the Father and the Son to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits. He does so by holding himself back and shining the floodlight over our shoulders to the exalted Christ. The Spirit doesn't want to get in the way of Christ. But we know he's still there. He's the spirit of truth, after all. He causes truth to prevail on this earth. He testifies to the truth, yes, to the one who is the truth. Therefore, I may readily confess that the spirit of Jesus Christ is true and eternal God, together with the Father and the Son, and is also given to me. To one who is a sinner, but at the same time a home for the Spirit. How marvelous, O Lord, is your grace. How exciting is your gift of yourself. And yet, how does that gift work in those to whom he is given? We come now to our second point, where we see the activity of the Spirit. Well, the attentive reader of Scripture, brothers and sisters, will notice that the references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament are rather infrequent. He's seldom mentioned. But for us to conclude from this that the Spirit was not active in the Old Testament is to make a very gross mistake. The Spirit was most active. We read of the Spirit involved in creating, Genesis 1 verse 2, He's also involved in recreating Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. He also equipped people for specific tasks. Think of kings like Saul, David. Think of judges like Gideon, Samson. Also... Just as in the New Testament, so also in the Old. Faith was worked by the Holy Spirit. And so the fact that there are only a few references in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us that the Spirit didn't have a fundamental role to play. Rather, the presence of only a few references does tell us that the Lord was pleased not to fully reveal the Holy Spirit at that time. And that may very well raise in your mind the question why a full revelation of the Spirit is delayed until the New Testament. Well, the answer is as follows. 
spirit was not fully revealed in the Old Testament because his work was not so much to focus on creating or recreating. For sure he was involved in that. He still is involved in creating and renewing. But scripture is especially concerned with his work of salvation. And that's to say that his distinctive task revolved around Jesus Christ. His new covenant role is what someone has indeed called a floodlight ministry in relation to Jesus Christ. Pay attention to what it was, when it was that the Spirit was fully revealed. John 7 verse 39 refers to the time of Christ's earthly ministry as a time when the Spirit was not yet. The Spirit is not poured out. He's not revealed before Christ's sufferings on the cross, nor in those 40 days he walked the earth after his resurrection It's only after the Father glorified the Son that Pentecost would come, that the Spirit's work of pointing men to Christ's glory could begin. Well, it's that reality that underlines for us that the Spirit's work, He works as a floodlight on Jesus Christ. Our minds here again can go to the Gospel of John. The Lord Jesus expressed in the night of his betrayal that the Spirit would come to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. To say it differently, the Spirit would come so that God's church would never forget her Savior. Later, In what we read in John 16, verse 13, our Lord says further, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit would not do or say what was right in his own eyes, and he doesn't draw attention to himself either. Rather, He will glorify me, for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's central task is straightforward. Shine the spotlight on Christ. He will glorify me. Spirit takes from what is Christ's and declares that to the disciples. He says to fallen Blinded people, behold the Christ, look for him, for he has many riches. He is greatly to be praised. In him there is salvation. Well, another revealing proof of this central task of the Spirit is given to us in Acts 2. That's where we find recounted for us the events of in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, if there were ever an opportunity for the Spirit to reveal exactly what His special task was, surely would have been Pentecost Day. Yet, what happens 
in that speech the Apostle Peter makes after the Spirit has just been poured out? Who's the subject of his sermon? It's not the Holy Spirit. Rather, inspired by the very Spirit who was moments before poured out, Peter implores the crowd to consider Jesus Christ. Oh sure, if you read that passage, you see Peter quoting from the prophecy of Joel that speaks about pouring out the Spirit. But no sooner is he done quoting that text than he says, Men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. He then explains how Jesus suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried, but was raised on the third day and taken up into heaven and granted a seat at God's right hand. And from his throne, he has poured out what you now see and hear. And why, why has the Lord done all this? Chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Well, that was so very consistent, you see, with the work of the Holy Spirit, with the character of the Spirit. From what the Spirit does on the very day he's poured out, it becomes so clear that the basic thrust of his activity is to cause sinners to see Christ. He simply doesn't want the attention. It's as if he's there in a text just long enough until you notice him and then he steps back. So he doesn't cause people to look to himself. He comes into Peter and, as it were, immediately generated a beam of light coming from Peter to show the people the exalted Christ. So, brothers and sisters, what God has joined together, together, let's not rent asunder. To separate the Spirit of Christ from the, from the Christ himself and his work, is to manhandle the word of God. Why else does scripture repeatedly refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ? To highlight the exalted Christ. And so, where Jesus Christ is preached, the Spirit is present and working. Even if you don't hear his name that much. You see the light, not the light source, after all. Uh, it's clear from all of this that without the Spirit, the salvation Christ obtained would never, ever become ours. There would be no desire, no appetite for that salvation. You see, God's Son is worthy of all praise. All men ought to acknowledge this King of all the earth and recognize what he has done in obtaining salvation for fallen sinners. Yet, the sad truth of it all is that not one single descendant of Adam is able to observe what Christ has done and to praise him on account of it. Each is thoroughly dead in sin. 
and the dead cannot see that Christ alone has salvation. So it's because of the extent of man's depravity that the Spirit's task on earth is to cause men to look to Christ. Well, that means, really, that the outpouring of the Spirit is a source of humiliation for us. Without Christ, there's no salvation. Without the Spirit, the salvation that Christ may have acquired can, may not be made ours, could not be made ours. No man would see Christ if it weren't for the fact that a floodlight was placed on our Savior. Even then, our eyes would remain blind until they were opened by the renewing work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who works in man both the will to believe and the act of believing. Pentecost then is just as essential, just as important in the history of salvation as is the incarnation and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Spirit works this faith. He renews man's hearts for the express purpose that men might be able to, to give glory to Christ. If it weren't for the Spirit's continued presence, None of us would seek the things that are above. But God the Spirit is with us, given to us, dwells in us, so that we might be enabled to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Spirit's identity as divine person makes his activity possible. And that's a fact that's stimulating for those who believe, those in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. That brings us then to our final point where we consider the fruit of the Spirit. Well, it's clear by now, congregation, that being a Christian is synonymous as saying the same thing as having the Spirit. To say that one has Christ is to say that one has the Spirit of Christ. And that silences those in our day who say, you need a baptism of the Spirit, otherwise you are a second-class Christian. Scripture is clear that an essential characteristic of every Christian is that he is filled with the Spirit of his Savior. One example, the apostle writes in Romans 8, verse 9, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So to be a Christian is to have the Spirit. Those two are inseparable. And therefore, Christians are not to be divided into two distinct groups, those who have the Spirit and those who don't. You don't get that coming out of Scripture itself. As a matter of fact, the reality that the Spirit dwells in the hearts of every Christian also simply flows from what his main task is. If it's his work to focus the attention of men on Jesus Christ, 
How shall men be Christians apart from the Spirit? The Spirit is the agent of Christ. He continues on earth where Christ left off. But if the Holy Spirit then lives in all Christians, then it follows that our lives cannot look as if he doesn't live in us. That's also why the Apostle Paul is able to contrast the lifestyle of those who don't have the Spirit with those who do have him. And to urge the Galatians to live by the Spirit. Paul becomes very explicit when talking of the type of conduct found in the unregenerate man and in the spiritual man. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, and it carries on. By contrast, the fruit of those governed by the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The works of the flesh are things, people, including we ourselves, do by nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is a certain kind of conduct, one that gives vivid proof of the Spirit's presence. So, when the people you know, whether it's your neighbors on the street, those you do business with, those you chum along with in the classroom, those you play sports with, when they see you, what do they see? If you have the Spirit, then a particular kind of conduct has to follow. You are different than your unbelieving neighbor, and that has to show itself everywhere, not just in pockets where it's convenient. It's one thing for people in your life to know you go to church. It's another thing altogether for them to see that where you go on Sunday really has an impact on your daily life. That you show the fruit of the Spirit, even if they don't call it that. Those who have the Spirit have to show. And that's ultimately done by being a imitator of Christ, the one who showed the fruit of the Spirit perfectly. Being filled with the Spirit shows itself in a Christ-like character in your personal, everyday life. That's what Paul wrote elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the Lord's glory, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, that close identification of Christ and His Spirit. Given then that the Holy Spirit focuses our, our attention on Christ, it logically flows that we will also draw attention to the Savior. We are to reflect the glory of the Lord. Christians, just like the Spirit, glorify the Savior. And because the Holy Spirit 
opens our eyes to behold the exalted Savior, we must respond in ways fitting to the picture we are allowed to see. Just as a landscaper cannot contain his delight because of the beauty revealed by the floodlight on his designed waterfall, so also a Christian cannot remain silent about what the Spirit has caused him to see in Christ. It is a consequence of being filled with the Spirit that one is compelled to speak, each in his own place, about that glorious and exalted Savior. That, as also the Scriptures testify, is the recipe for church growth today. We can talk about the need for organized outreach events. But really... We need spirit-filled believers who are so enthralled with their Savior and Lord and His work that they are overcome with gratitude and then make it their business to share Christ's work with those they know. It is not possible for a spirit-anointed, spirit-filled Christian to be called to the Lord God. Enthusiasm for His work Enthusiasm brought about by his work. It is part and parcel of being filled with the Spirit. Lord's Day 20, brothers and sisters, is a personal confession. One produced by the Spirit himself. We say that we believe the Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son true and eternal God, and that this divine person is also given to me, to make me, by true faith, share in Christ and all his benefits. You have to take that confession on your lips. And at the same time, you may not stare yourself blind on the Spirit. He was not given so that you might look to him, Be preoccupied with him. He was given in order to direct you to the exalted Christ. So let us not grieve the Holy Spirit by looking into the floodlight. Instead, let's all look at that lighted building, at the glorious Christ himself. Amen.